1 John chapter 5, beginning verse 14, says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. And Father, we just ask for the grace and the help of your spirit that we might continue now to worship you as we have through song and through prayer and our fellowship and the many ways that we can honor you, Lord, as we gather like this. We offer this time as a continuation of our worship. Lord, please speak life to us, illuminate us, Lord, by the power and the light and truth of your word that we might hear your voice this morning. Bless this time, and may we hear your Spirit's ministry speaking to each and every one of us, and we ask this together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. For those of us who are in relationship with Jesus and know God as Father, as our personal heavenly father being his child, one of the greatest privileges that we now have, as well as also one of the most effective, we might say, tools or weapons to help us is the opportunity to be able to approach and to ask God Almighty as our loving and powerful father for his help, for his intervention, for his guidance and assistance, for things that we many times just cannot do on our own. And this seems to be what our passage is trying to drive home to us, confidence in prayer. That we would, as the result of looking at these things this morning, hopefully walk away from this worship gathering having greater confidence in prayer in two ways. First of all, that we would put more confidence in the value of prayer that we would put more confidence in the importance of exercising prayer instead of struggling in our human efforts to try and make things happen, or instead of striving to bring some change through our own efforts or trying to make things happen on our own, that we would put more confidence instead in asking God to do things, asking God to work in situations, to move by his power, and allowing God to work by faith after we've asked him to do what only maybe he can do and much better than us. And secondly, that we pray more confidently. Not just that we put more confidence in prayer itself and the value and importance of it, that we would also pray more confidently. That is, we'd ask God and really anticipate he's listening and that he is going to act. And that we're not just kind of vainly tossing up a religious exercise and saying a few things, but that God actually is going to act and to answer. And I think John, as we've been talking about, is a seasoned Christian in his 90s at this point. He's been walking with Jesus since his teenage years. So it's fair to say he's logged a good perhaps 70 years of walking with Jesus. He served the Lord in ministry as a leader among the early church. He understands these spiritual realities well. And it seems that his intention as he now writes these things under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
is to make us more confident and assured in the value of prayer, to prompt us to exercise praying and seeking God more. And in this section that we've been kind of looking at, if you remember, John's been speaking a great deal about assurance that we have as God's children. As we left off last time in chapter 5, he had just spoken there emphatically about the assurance we can have about eternal life. And in verses 11 through 13, he made it very evident that it's not a guessing game whether a person is going to heaven or whether they're not going to heaven. John said very clearly there, this is the testimony. God has given eternal life. That is the opportunity to have life eternal in heaven together with him in his presence forever when this life on earth is over. And he said in that life that he has given that's eternal, that life is found in his son. So therefore, if you have Jesus Christ, the son of God within your life, you've received him as savior for your sins. And if you have Christ as a part of your life, you already possess eternal life. And that if you don't have the Son of God or you've rejected the Son of God, that it's important to realize that you don't possess the eternal quality of life to be prepared to enter into heaven. That that is found in the very eternal Son of God, and that is the determining factor. And he said, I've written these things to you who believe, to Christians, so that you can know. So you don't have to question. There's not a, I think I'm going to heaven. No, you know. You either know or you don't know. One way, it's just an evident thing. The Bible says it's not something God wants us as human beings having a question mark about. We can eliminate the question of, I think I'm going to heaven. God says, no, you can know one way or the other. It's very simplistic. And again, he's writing to assure us, to encourage us as God's people that we can rest in that and have that reliance. And now, Again, this has kind of been a theme. John many times has talked about the confidence of Christ's return, the confidence of eternal life. And now notice he instructs going forward here about confident assurance regarding communicating with God. And now as he comes into our verses this morning, he says, here's something else you can be very confident about. You can be very certain of something that you can have surety and certainty. And it's in regards to asking things of God with confidence. Look with me in verse 14 in our text again. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's listening. He's paying attention. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know certainty that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So God's word here is speaking of the wonderful privilege of the Christian. The one who knows God as father, the one who is in relationship with God as it pertains to being able to pray. And when we use the word pray, we're talking about communicating with God. It should seem that one wouldn't have to define that, but that is what prayer is in its essence. It's simple, sincere communication with God. It's not reading phrases or rehearsing a chant religiously. It's just genuine, sincere, honest, real communication with God, just like we as people have real communication with one another. And here John is speaking about this wonderful privilege that we can have as God's child. Notice he says there in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him. The idea is through personal relationship with God. That is, the person who understands this, realizes by the truths and promises that were given here that they are based upon relationship that the believer has with God. 
These are relational promises. These are not promises generic for anyone, but these are promises for the person who is in him, in relationship with God. That is, those of us who understand the reality of what it means to have a real, biblically defined relationship with God. That we're not just doing religious routines, we're not trying to get a little more spiritual, we're not going through religious motions, but that we have now come to a place of a true and real relationship with God and understanding what that means from a biblical perspective. That is, that at some point in our life, we recognize that we were not initially born into a relationship with God, that we were born separated from God, that we are sinful by nature, our sin causes us to be guilty before a holy God, and we are disconnected from God relationally, but that God's solution lovingly is Jesus. And that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe upon him as the Savior would not perish eternally but have everlasting life. And that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him, through Jesus, might be saved from that condition. And that we might enter into a relationship with God by coming and receiving his son. And and those of us who have now entered into that relationship with Jesus by faith... We now, the Bible teaches, using the analogy, in a sense, we have become married to Christ. We, like the bride, Jesus, like the groom, we've now been joined in a spiritual union with Jesus. We're married to Jesus, following his leadership. And because we're married to the Son of God, that makes us a child of God to God the Father. That makes sense? As you're married to the Son of God, that means that God the Father is, is now your father spiritually. And that is what a biblical child of God is. And now that we are in that condition of being a biblical child of God, when we understand and have that relationship spiritually, John says in him, there's a confidence we can now have in approaching God in prayer. That when you have God as your heavenly father, it gives to you incredible confidence to come to the father in heaven, who by the wonderful reality is also the king of kings. That you're a king's kid. Oh, I'm so poor. Well, you may think you're poor, but you're a king's kid. You're a king's child. You're a child of the king of kings, and that is your father upon his throne. And John speaks here in verse 14 saying, this is the confidence that we now have in him, notice, regarding asking things from him. And that term that John uses there, confidence, speaks of a boldness or a sense of certainty. The idea is a grand degree of assurance as you approach the throne of a mighty king, that because of the relational dynamic, there's no apprehension with approaching that powerful throne. There's no fear if you're going to be received. There's no concern of whether or not he's going to want to give audience to you. Instead of insecurity, there's complete certainty and assurance because you know I can approach that throne, though that's a powerful king because that's my father. And my father is always willing to give me his time or attention. So he's describing this confidence we possess toward God in approaching his throne. And look, the Bible teaches that confidence is all because of what Jesus has already done for us and what Jesus supplies to us in our relationship with him. It has nothing to do with, did I perform good enough last week? It has nothing to do with, have I done so far this morning well enough or because of that mistake I made driving to church, that's not prophetic, I know it didn't happen to any of you, 
could happen once in a while, that God's not going to listen to me. It has everything to do with not our performance or how well we're doing in our practice because we all fail. John's going to say that right in these verses. It has everything to do with understanding the positional relationship that you have. I'm a child of God. My Father in heaven, because of Jesus, accepts me on those terms. Hebrews 4 says it this way, regarding the one in relationship with Christ, forgiven by Jesus, having Jesus' righteousness. He says this, Hebrews 4, Therefore let us draw near with confidence when approaching the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that amazing? The most powerful throne, the throne of Almighty God, the Bible says, is also characterized as a throne of grace. Grace is undeserved kindness. It's being favorably disposed. It's wanting to be helpful and merciful whether you deserve it or not. Look, any parent understands that. Now, I don't want to say I had a throne in my house, but my throne at times was a throne of grace, so my daughters came to me. They may not have deserved what they were asking for, but my heart was favorably disposed towards them because of the love and the relationship. I always wanted what was best for them, whether they were behaving well or were not behaving well. It's that, that heart, and God's throne is a throne of grace, and he says we can come boldly with confidence to that throne. That's our blessed privilege as God's children, all because of what Jesus has done, that we have access by grace and through faith, invited confidently to approach, knowing he's willing to be merciful to our weaknesses, and that we can obtain, it says there, grace and mercy to help in our deepest times of need. And look, that confidence as a child of God is something that John is saying here that we should really be seeking to grow in. And John kind of drills down on this as he's finishing out his letter and says, look, I want you as God's people. I'm about to depart, John's saying. I'm in my 90s here. I'm not going to have to pray anymore. I'm just going to talk directly, face to face, no walkie-talkie. I'm going to be right in the presence of God. But he's saying to these believers, to you and I who he's writing to, who are still here, look, we should grow in our confidence in prayer and asking things of God. But note that confidence in prayer does include a few things. And the first one I'm going to state from the text here, really, honestly, you may say seems ridiculously obvious, but I think it's very important. And the first thing to grow in this confidence of prayer is this, is that we need to actually engage in the spiritual exercise of praying. We have to actually engage in the exercise of seeking God's help. You notice multiple times here in these verses, you see the repeated phrase, if we ask, if we ask, or whatever we ask. Notice the key word there, ask, ask. In other words, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit's reminding you and I that we have to literally engage in prayer, that our responsibility is though we have incredible access, is that we ask. See, if, if you have access to a powerful throne, but you never go to the throne and ask for help or guidance or assistance, the problem's not with the throne, the problem's with the petitioner, right? I didn't go ask. There was opportunity available for help or power or provision or to work on my behalf, but I didn't go and ask. And so I think it's very important to recognize this. Now, look, certainly prayer is much more than just asking things of God. 
And I think in maturity, we need to recognize that prayer is also about expressing praise towards God and thanksgiving to God for things. Prayer is about, at times, sharing our burdens with God and just unloading our concerns and having a safe place to talk to someone in a real way to just pour out your heart. And we saw in our study in the book of Psalms on Wednesday nights, I mean, the raw emotion, every range of emotion possible of the psalmist just pouring out his heart to God in a comfortable way and unloading his burdens in his soul. Prayer's about admitting to God when we failed. And we should do that as a part of prayer. We should acknowledge and take ownership and apologize to God for our errors and ask his forgiveness. Prayer is also about listening to God and that it's a two-way conversation and that sometimes we're quiet and we listen to see if God would actually say something in return to us. But one of the main components of prayer, which is what John is mainly addressing, is asking things of God in humble dependency and realizing I am an impoverished, weak human being that's limited, and I need to ask God for his help with things. I need to come to God and ask God to do things that at times I just can't do in my human limitations. And we have great confidence that we can approach God's throne and he's going to give us audience. We can come confidently and certainly, but all that to say our part is actually doing this part, actually coming to God actually asking, actually praying. Because see, that confidence doesn't serve any purpose if we neglect to ever ask or we fail to spend time praying or we don't seek God's involvement in helping us or doing things. Really then, prayer becomes a wasted privilege. It becomes a missed and forsaken opportunity. James addresses this in chapter 4, uh, he says, James chapter 4, and James didn't mince words. If you're looking for a little kick in the, can you say keister from the pulpit? I hope that's the right way to say it, but whatever. Uh, forgive me if not. Sorry, God. Uh, James just says it direct. Listen to what he says. You desire, that is, you have a desire for something, but you don't have it, so you kill. In other words, you're mad that you're not getting your desire, so you get aggressive, and you're even willing to hurt other people because you're going to get what you want, even if you've got to hurt people to get it. He then goes on to say, and you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so then you quarrel and fight with people. Why do people hurt people? Sometimes because they don't pray. They don't pray, so they hurt people and take what they want. Or why are we always fighting? Why are we always quarreling? Sometimes it's because instead of praying and asking God to work in a situation or orchestrate something, we try and do it with our arguing and debating and pressuring and pushing, and, and we, we use our mouths talking to people or about people rather than just saying, God, could you just work in this situation? Because I don't want to fight over this. Uh, would you just work? Would you change that person's heart? Would you change my heart? And he says, you quarrel and fight because you don't ask. And then he concludes saying, you do not have because you do not ask God. Wow, that's sobering. Because we don't ask God for things or sometimes we don't ask God to work, Things don't happen because we neglected to pray. We didn't take advantage of the opportunity. Sometimes, let's just be very candid, we are frustrated with how things are. Sometimes we're frustrated with how things are not or why there's not change. And maybe part of that responsibility is upon me as God's child because maybe I neglected to pray. 
Maybe I failed to ask God to work in the situation, and that's why things have not changed. Or that's why things still are the way they are, because perhaps I'm, in a sense, to a degree guilty of not truly asking and engaging in prayer as we should for whatever the different reasons may be. We may attempt things in human effort, but we sometimes neglect to sincerely ask God. And boy, we will work and try and burn up a sweat trying to make things happen in the flesh at times, but at times can be very guilty of engaging in prayer and truly crying out to God and seeing the value and importance. And it's almost, again, if I could illustrate, like a child who, let's say, gets off track, or a child who's so frustrated because they can't fix something, or a child who is just, you know, kind of struggling in some way or very frustrated. And sometimes part of that child being like that is maybe they're neglecting to just go over and to ask their dad for help. Or maybe they're just so overwhelmed because they're just failing to go to their parent and say, I can't fix this. I don't know what to do in this situation. And in their own childish stubbornness or immaturity, they just fail to ask their parent where their parent could very easily say, I could fix that for you. I know how to handle that, or I can take care of that for you. And they, in a sense, rob themselves by simply not asking the parent. Well, often as Christians, let's be very real, can I for a moment? Often as Christians, we complain about how things are. But sadly, sometimes, though we complain a lot about things as Christians, we don't channel our frustrations and complaints into crying out to God in prayer. We'll complain a great deal. We'll even light up social media, auditing all of our opinions. And we'll, oh, this and that. But if we took that same thing and we channeled that in praying and asking God, God, would you work in this situation? God, would you change? I can't help but to wonder that God's saying, maybe sometimes you have not because you're not asking, because you're neglecting the opportunity of how I bring change or how I work which is through asking and seeking God for his intervention in prayer. Often as believers, we strive to change things. We try and make things happen, yet there's little investment and commitment put into taking the time to ask God to seek God in prayer, whether it's in praying individually, praying together as God's people corporately. Confidence in prayer, folks, really begins, truthfully, confidence in prayer really begins when we become confident that it's worth praying. That's where it starts. Now, whoever said amen, I expect to see you at a prayer meeting tonight. I didn't see you, but just in case. Right? Again, how many times did Jesus often read the Gospels, and he would say, ask, seek. It's almost, he's, he, Jesus, please ask. Think about that. Here's God saying, ask me stuff. What an invitation. Please ask me stuff. Seek me for some stuff. Come knock on my door. See if you don't find things and doors aren't opened. And again, it's almost amazing to even think about that. But part of the reason, however, is that we just at times, if we're honest, can err to not genuinely engage in praying. Another thing I think John clearly brings out in the text here regarding confidence of prayer is understanding the purpose behind why we should be asking things of God. What really is the main purpose from a biblical perspective of why we should be asking things for God? Well, you could not get more clear as he zeroes in on the important truth here of why we should pray. Look at it in our text. He says, this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to what? His will. Asking things according to his 
will. Confidence in asking God is connected to asking things in accordance with God's will. That is seeking to ask of God what he wants, asking things that God would be pleased with, asking things that align with God's plan, that line up with God's purpose. This is the reason, really the motive that we should be praying, asking God to orchestrate what he attends, to work out what he's seeking to bring to pass, to have his will be done and accomplish what pleases him. Here we see a very important spiritual principle to understand the truest reason to pray, the highest reason to pray. And that is very simply to seek to partner with God in seeing his will to be done. That is the highest motive and reason for asking things of God. Jesus, who was the perfect man, right? He was God living as man, fully God, fully man. So we worship Jesus as God. We follow Jesus as man. What did he praise the perfect man? Father, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was always seeking, even when he communicated with his father, that the will of the Father in heaven will be done. So important that we understand that the purpose behind our communication with God, particularly when we're asking things of God, when we're making requests of God, is not to convince God to do what I want. It's not to try and talk God into doing what I desire. It's not to compel God through pity on me or pressure through my begging to eventually give me my way. That's not the goal. I understand that's how we as children or our children may have communicated with us at times. And that's, you know, God can handle our honesty, but the truest purpose of prayer is not to bring about what I want in a situation or even propose my idea and ask God to bless it. Well, God, I'm going to do this, and I just ask that you bless this, God. Wait a minute. I'm going to do this, and I ask that you bless it. Shouldn't it be, God, what would you like me to do? And then when we, if we know that okay, God, this is, I believe, what you want me to do. Would you bless this? Not this is what I'm going to do, and would you bless it? What if it's not what God wants me to do? And so the truest purpose of prayer is to discover and participate in seeing God's will come to pass, to ask for his plan and purpose to be orchestrated for his glory and purposes. The heart of prayer is through relationship with God, getting to know God's heart, getting to understand God's nature, getting to understand how he works from his throne, and then understanding that his ways are always best because he's a really wise king who knows all things and has all the facts and details. And as we get to know God well, we're able to then ask God to do things that align with his will, what pleases him, what will bring to pass his plan and purposes. So I think it's a fair question to then ask in connection to knowing, okay, the purpose of prayer is not to get my will done, but to ask that God's will would come to pass and I would participate in that, how can I do my part then? Beyond asking things, how can I do my part to ask things according to God's will? Well, let me suggest a few simple things. One is very simply this, that we should become very well acquainted with the word of God. Because the word of God is the written revelation of the will of God. The word of God reveals to us God's nature. It tells us what God's like. It indicates to us things about God, what pleases God. It tells us what displeases God. It shows us how God operates. 
It allows us to understand what matters to the Lord. It allows us to hear directly what God promises at times. Direct, clear promises from God. And God always keeps his promises. God's word tells us in in predictive ways what he intends to do. It lets us know both in good and bad ways what's a part of his plan, what he asks for, what he's warning against. God's word reveals to us his heart and nature. We can know his plan and his purposes and what he desires. So as we get to know and become acquainted with the word of God, we then take our acquaintance with the word of God and our awareness of what we know about God and his ways and what pleases him, what displeases him, how he works from his word. We then take that awareness and we apply it by then communicating with God, by asking things in ways that we understand are a part of God's ways. We take the truths of God's word and the principles and the promises, and then we can ask things in alignment with his will much more accurately. And we can pray in according to the will of God much more effectively. We ask God in ways confidently because we can know, hey, the word of God shows me this about God or his ways or his promise. So then we, God, you say in your word, Lord, I know that this is in your word. So Lord, therefore, in light of that, and then we can pray in that manner. Or I would encourage as well as you do your personal Bible reading time. One of the things I started doing years ago, rather than in my devotional time, kind of praying and reading my Bible or reading my Bible and then praying, is I just do both simultaneously. I just pray as I'm reading the word of God because I realize I, as I read a phrase, okay, that, so and then I just start talking to the Lord about that. And then I go back to reading and then I, I talk to the Lord about that. And to just use the word of God as a way to direct your prayer time. In some ways, I find that helps me as well from just keeping the same, praying the routine prayers every single morning. Because I'm reading a different passage, I'm praying about different things. And it's just a wonderful way to help us to pray in accordance with the will of God by praying with an awareness and a good acquaintance with the word of God. Another thing I would recommend as well to pray in accordance with the will of God is that we would seek to be led by the spirit of God to help us when we're actually praying. And again, the Bible encourages us to look to the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us in our prayers. And in order to do that, I think we really have to seek to be sensitive sometimes, to slow down and be a little more sensitive and open to the help of the Holy Spirit in our prayer lives. When we read in Romans chapter 8 that one of our weaknesses is It says, Romans 8, one of our weaknesses is we don't know how to pray as we ought to. And boy, that happens in so many different capacities, right? We know that we should pray, right? And I I know that I need to pray right now, but sometimes I don't even know what to pray, Lord. I don't even know what to pray in this situation. And and, and sometimes just in our weakness, Lord, what things should I be asking? And in our human weakness, we don't know how we should pray or what to pray. And the Bible says the Spirit helps us in that weakness. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit as a helper within you and I as a Christian is he wants to help us to pray, Romans 8 says, in accordance with the will of God. That's pretty awesome that the Holy Spirit can help me within his spirit communicating with my spirit to know how to bring to pass prayers in accordance with the will of God, even if we're just groaning and, and not even knowing what to ask, that the spirit helps us in our prayer life. Ephesians 6 tells us the same in spiritual battles. He says that we should pray in the spirit on all times and on all occasions. Jude says the same regarding growing spiritually. He says, seek to be praying 
in the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look, I would encourage you this morning, as we pray, seek more and more as a Christian to try and pray, not just from the prompting of your human spirit alone, but try and genuinely slow down and be patient and listen to the promptings of the Spirit of God regarding what you're asking. Let the Holy Spirit bring impressions on your mind and upon your heart of what to ask and what to communicate about. Beware of just rambling and nervous religious chatter when you pray. Or just you know, kind of sounding spiritual. And I know we don't do that when we pray alone. Sometimes we may, almost as if we have to impress God. Well, I, I just I want to make sure I sound right. Look, I never cared what my kids sounded like. When my children came to me, when they were babbling, couldn't say, until you can speak proper grammar, do not speak to me. No, I mean, I, I thought it was cute when they were babbling. We were, what do you think they just said? What, what you, I mean, we don't do that to our human children. God doesn't care how proficiently we communicate. What he cares about is that we would please communicate. He wants, like a father, to hear our voice. And so, again, we want to be careful. We don't need to sound spiritual. We want to speak freely to a father. Speak direct and specific words. How do you pray? The same way you talk to a person. I'm not saying don't be reverent, but, but just talk normally. Talk naturally. You don't have to quote Bible verses. You don't have to speak in King James English. You don't have to change the sound of your voice to get more spiritual. You don't have to shout at God. He's not deaf. He doesn't have a hearing aid. He can hear a still, small voice. We should pray passionately, certainly, but in clear, meaningful ways, just specifically asking what you're asking. You know, Jesus even rebuked an error and instructed proper communication with God, showing the error of those who are praying aloud and using praying aloud as a platform to try and impress people with their spirituality rather than just being sincere and talking to God together with a group of fellow children of God. And Jesus sort of reproved this very thing and, and encouraged not doing such and even not praying too long and praying publicly. He said, Matthew 6, when you pray, don't be like the, ouch, hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. In other words, that others would observe how they prayed. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full, Jesus said. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Again, emphasizing it's between you and God. Again, should we pray together? Yes. But the heart of prayer is the same thing of just you and a father having a conversation. And again, we're a group communicating to God. Great. But we're still just talking to our father. I'm not preaching a sermon for the person three rows down from me indirectly rebuking them through my prayer, right? And we, we, we chuckle because we've all been a part of that before. Or I'm not monopolizing the time where I'm having a private communication with God and I've been praying for 12 minutes and everybody else is already left the prayer meeting. And, and again, what we're taking into consideration, just simple, genuine, direct communication with God, just talking to God honestly. Jesus even said this, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't use, now Jesus said this, not me. When you pray, don't use vain, empty, the word is, repetitions. Another translation says, by keeping on babbling. 
as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. Again, Jesus said not you know, repetitious, not saying don't think you have to pray real long. He says your father already knows before you ask what you're going to ask anyway. So just say it plainly. Speak specifically and directly. Again, prayer is a parent-child privilege whereby God allows us to just sincerely come and ask directly, just to, to tell God what the reality is. You know, I think if we approached human thrones or if we had access to some, you know, human king, we'd probably be pretty specific when we got to the throne. We wouldn't just ramble and ramble. We would just, we, hey, I'm in front of a king. I better just say what I want. Don't know how long I'm going to get here. And again, God will entertain us forever, but the point is we want to be genuine and specific. And I tell you this, the more as God's people were open to the leading and help of the Holy Spirit, we won't just ramble and say random things or pray incessantly or we'll pray specifically what the Spirit of God is putting on our heart or in our mind to pray and we'll ask. And we'll ask those things more and more that are in accordance with the will of God because it will be the Holy Spirit helping us through this ministry of prayer to have better relationship with the Father, to intercede, to ask God to help people in situations as the Spirit is impressing and guiding us. And the other thing I would say as well in regards to asking in accordance with God's will that helps is if we're going to ask in accordance with God's will, yes, we should ask passionately. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with pleading with God and being passionate in prayer, but I always have to keep a heart of humility and yieldedness. I always have to have that attitude like Jesus, Father, not my will, but your will be done. If Jesus prayed that way as a man and he yielded his will to the heavenly Father, how much more should you and I? Look, I encourage you, be very, very careful of those who kind of give this idea that prayer is like relating to God like a genie in the bottle. And if you just rub the genie bottle the right way, then the genie has to give you one of those three wishes. Look, with God, you get unlimited wishes. I don't want God to be like a genie. But I want him to be a king on a throne. And, and I don't believe that God is so passive that like a poor parent, he's going to just give a child whatever they demand. If my kids came to me at eight years old and said, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? No. But Dad, in Tony's name, Give me the keys to that car. No. Let me try it another way. No. I'm your father. That's not good for you. It's not good for others. I, I'm not going to give you something that I don't think is in the best judgment for you. I love you. I have more wisdom than you. And so, again, God's not a genie in a bottle. We ask but we always reverently, humbly with an open hand, Father, if this is your will, I ask this, but, but Father, your will be done, whatever your will is. And that's how we seek to pray in accordance with the will of God. And look, he says here, when we pray in that way, asking anything according to his will, he, I hope my time's not up, he hears us. It is almost up. That's why I keep this here. He hears us, and he says, and if we know that he hears us, look at verse 15. Whatever we're asking, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. Wow, talk about recognizing that God pays attention and powerfully acts to fulfill our proper requests. To have that kind of confidence that when we pray according to God's will, there is tremendous spiritual confidence. John says that he's hearing us, that he's enthusiastically listening. Why? Because the Father is going, oh, I'm so glad you're asking that. 
that's exactly what my will is. I've been waiting for you to ask something. Like, and, and he gets enthusiastic. That's just what I want to do. That's exactly what I would, this is what I promised and what I intend. So he listens, he's attentive. And he, he says that we also have the things that we've asked, whatever we're asking. Now that's an amazing Bible promise. To hear the word of God saying that when we ask things in accordance with God's will, almighty God is powerfully listening and he is willing because it's within his will to allow us to know that we can rely on the fulfillment of that, that we can be confident that he's going to act in that situation because we are confident that is within his will and plan. He's reminding us that as we pray in accordance with God's will, those kind of prayers can be relied on for answers. We don't have to have wishfulness. We can know that is something I believe that God's going to do, and we can pray with faith. We can anticipate a response. We can believe the Lord in his way and in his time is going to do such because he's glad to accomplish what's in alignment with his plans and purposes. You know, when we look at the words of Jesus and the promises he gave to encourage us to pray, to prompt us to pray, our hearts should be very encouraged. I mean, listen to just some of what Jesus said in light of this confidence to believe that we will have what we ask when we're asking in God's will. Matthew 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And him who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he said, what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, that's the analogy, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask? Jesus says, if you want to give things to your children that are good and beneficial when they ask, how much more does a heavenly Father want to do that? Jesus said as well, John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name. John 16, he said, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Regarding praying together in agreement and faith, Matthew 18, Jesus said, again, truly I tell you, if any two of you agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And finally, Mark 11, Jesus there said, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will. Now listen, to ask in the name of Jesus is to ask in alignment with the throne in the heart of the throne because as you would come and represent as an ambassador of King Philip, the idea is you represent the throne, not your plan, but the heart and desires of the throne. And that's what it is to ask in the name of Jesus, not just to use his name as a catchphrase, it's to ask in alignment with the heart of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. But he says here some things that if we truly, folks, would take them like a child and not let our human logic get in the way, we should be blown away about what Jesus is inviting us to do here. Ask. Ask something in my name and believe that you're going to receive it and you'll, you'll receive it. And repeatedly, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, encouraged us to ask and to seek expectantly to believe that God would give things, that God would work and do things, and what great confidence Jesus was trying to stir in our hearts that we would pray 
confident that prayer is worth participating in, that we would realize, man, with those offers, why would I not pray and I should pray expectantly, especially when I know I'm praying something that's God's will. Right? The Bible says that God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. When I pray for someone to get saved, when you pray for someone to get saved, you should know you're, that's God's will. And we should be praying, believing that God is going to do it. I can't answer when, I can't answer how. It may not even be before I depart from the earth. But I should know, hey, that's a prayer that I know is God's will. I'm believing that's going to happen because God said that he'll answer prayers in accordance with his will. Now, in verse 16 and 17, John intends, it seems, to address something that we as well know is God's will, and that's simply this, that people who are sinning would stop sinning and that they would cease and not continue. Look with me, verse 16 and 17. He says, if anyone sees a brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him, that's God, will give him, the sinning person, life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Thanks, John. We got that. That's clear. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, I think it is essential in a place like this to grasp the main principle being taught. For those of us who are going to glory, we can all ask John exactly what he was trying to say there in his 90s as he's writing these very things here. But I think this is one of these places that we not get bogged down overanalyzing any one detail that may be a little bit hard to grasp and miss and fail to take to heart the clear instruction that God is giving, which in essence is really this, praying for a fellow brother or sister who is living in sin and asking God, because we know it's his will to get people out of sin, and when we ask things that are God's will, he hears and does those things. And John almost giving an application of that, I think here, almost kind of, I would say, if I could use this old adage, sometimes we can't see the forest due to the trees, right? And as John's trying to communicate this here, and he uses some language that's a little bit kind of peculiar, I think it's crucial that we don't become overly involved in the details and miss the big picture that we're not so caught up staring at one tree and concentrating on one problem that we can't reconcile, that we miss the overall main issue. And that's important here, as John uses some language that is a little bit hard to grasp. Let's be very candid. He says, sin leading to death and sin not leading to death. What in the world are you talking about there? Sin leading to death, not leading to death. Well, let's grasp a few obvious things. We know from our study in 1 John chapters 1 and 2, that John told us there very clearly that all people sin. He even tells us very clearly in 1 John chapter 1 that even after becoming Christians, though we should no longer live in the practice of ongoing sin, that we will still fail at times and have to confess our sins and seek the Lord's forgiveness and cleansing. Now, that being said, perhaps to remind all of us, even as Christians, that we do falter and that we should never become self-righteous, that we should never become critical and turn off love and compassion for when a brother or sister in the Lord fails, and that even though some sins have worse consequences than other sins, that though that is true, that all sin is equally offensive and wrong before God. You notice he says the beginning of verse 17, all 
unrighteousness is sin. Some translations say all wrongdoing is sin. In other words, whenever we do not do what's right towards God in any area, thought, word, or deed, it's sin. Whenever we don't do what's right, whether a grievous offense to another person or a minor offense to another person, it's sin. There may be different consequences for times when we disobey God or dishonor God, but at the end of the day, severe or minor in consequences, God sees it all as sin, all unrighteousness from God's perspective. It misses the mark. It's sin. And the Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die, and the wages or payment of sin is death. Sin ruins lives gradually. It ruins relationships, it ruins physical life, it ruins eternal life if people don't come to Jesus and have their sin forgiven. And all believers, knowing what it means to struggle with sin, should care when another brother or sister in the Lord sins. That's why, look with me in verse 16, I think he says here, if anyone sees a brother or sister sinning some practice of sin, notice, sees if anyone sees. He doesn't say, if you hear a fellow Christian has sinned from someone else. He says here, if you yourself see firsthand a verifiable way they've erred in some way, maybe right in your presence, they did something, they acted in a way, they, and, and God allows you firsthand to see them commit a sin. And you realize, oh man, that... Mm. Or maybe through firsthand awareness, maybe they come to you and they confess their sin and they acknowledge to you, hey, I failed in this way. So you have firsthand awareness, you didn't hear about it, you see firsthand their sin, and he says here that it's a sin that does not lead to death. And he uses that phrase three times here, a sin that does not lead to death. There will be times when people commit sin, but that sin doesn't, as the end result, culminate in them dying from it. It's not a sin that causes them to lose their life. It's not a sin they engage in that leads to the suffering of death as a consequence. And again, I think John here appears to be speaking not about the unsaved soul, but about the Christian. Because you notice he says there in our language, if you see your brother, that's a spiritual family member. If you see your brother or sister committing some sin and that particular sin they committed, though it is wrong and destructive, Though it is going to have damaging impact because all sin harms and sin can slowly kill and destroy and rob lives. But he says, if you see some family member in the Lord, they've committed a sin, but they don't lose their life from it. Then he says, this is what should be done, that our role is to pray for them. Now, let me just say, sadly, some sins can be deadly. Committing some practices of sin can lead to a person's death. Even some believers, if they continually persist in some pattern of sin, they may lose the privilege or opportunity to keep living on this earth. God may sovereignly determine as an act of discipline if a believer is rebelling and sinning early on earth to give them a premature death to spare more damage in their life or other people's lives or for the testimony of the Lord. The Bible speaks of that reality. Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, 1 Corinthians 11 attests to that. That can happen. But in cases just generically when that's not something that we know has transpired and someone commits a sin 
and it doesn't result in them losing their life. They've just committed a sin. He says here, our role, because we know it's God's will, is to pray for them. To pray for them. Why? Because we don't want to see that sin continue and bring more harmful, destructive, deadly, damaging things to their lives. So our role is to ask and to pray. And he says, and God will grant them life. I think the idea there is that God will give life-giving power to them to repent, to turn away from that, to get back to right living and to walking with the Lord in the way that they should be. Now, John also says here in our verses that unfortunately there is indeed sin, he says it, there is indeed sin that leads to death. That is, those who may have tragically lost their life in direct connection to committing a particular sin. And John says, if that was the case because of a particular sin and mistake, it resulted in them losing their life. John says, it's not necessary to pray for that. In other words, to pray for the dead. What John is saying, Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. That if someone tragically did lose their life as the result of a sin they committed and it it became a, a loss of life as the result of that sin, John says, you can't change anything by praying for them now. God's will has been done. It's been settled. And you have to accept the will of God in regards to that situation. The main point is we all know this. Sin is destructive. Sin's damaging. It ruins lives. So when we see someone sinning, that's a brother or sister or Lord, our role, pray. Pray, God, please. Spare them, turn them before something worse or damaging happens. James 5 says, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save, listen, will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Look, may God help us as we depart from this text to remember the value of prayer and to put a little more confidence in the benefit of praying. I tell you something, folks, I'm convinced. The devil always seeks to find ways to keep the church from praying. And I can tell you why. Because the devil knows that if we just play church, there's minimal power in that. Let's stand and let's pray.